is a global generosity movement, unleashing the power of people and organizations to transform their communities and the world. While Giving Tuesday happens every Tuesday, the annual celebration of generosity only happens today. Join the movement with a gift to WMNF today. Go to WMNF.org and click the donate button. This is WMNF Tampa. We have a pre-recorded Tuesday Cafe today. This was recorded back in August. Today is Giving Tuesday, and I hope that you remember WMNF.org when you think about great organizations you can support with your donations. I'll be back next week with a live Tuesday Cafe at 10 o'clock. Welcome to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we are broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today on the show, we're going to talk about a couple of things. One is a shocking police raid in 2014 and how it led to the review of the city of Tampa's SWAT procedures and a settlement for the family of a man who was killed by police. And joining us later in the show to talk about this and a range of other police issues will be Justin Garcia. He's the Tampa Bay Times state and local accountability reporter. So I hope you stay tuned for that. And we're going to kick off the show by speaking with the director of a new documentary about how the middle class in America has been pushed to the edge and how to fight back against it. The documentary is called Americond. Joining me now is Sean Claffey, the director and producer of Americond. Welcome to Tuesday Cafe, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad you could come on to talk about this documentary. And we're going to hear the trailer for the film in just a few minutes. But first, why don't you set up this issue? What can you say about how policies in the U.S. have impacted the middle and working classes? Well, basically, we've, we've seen an upward redistribution of wealth of $50 trillion over the last 45 years. So we've seen the working class and the middle class having their wealth extracted and it going to really the the, the 1%. And really it's the 0.01%. And then we've seen productivity rise through the same time period. And while we see wages nationally stagnant, but in rural America, we've seen the wages cut in half since 1975. And that's really been very bad for a lot of Americans. So the idea that raising the, sh- the sea to raise some ships, the most wealthy ships, doesn't help the rest of us. It, actually, you're, you're mentioning some ideas of where uh, the rest of us are kind of bearing the burden for the, the wealthy getting super wealthy. Yes, and, and people are working more than they've ever worked before. You know, we used to have a, a country where... You know, you could ha- one person could work in the family, they could own a house, they could have a pension, they could have a car, and they could have vacations. And now, you know, the, the caveat to that is not that that did not include everyone, certainly. But, you know, after the New Deal, we were able to build this amazing middle class through different uh, government policies and regulations. And now we've, we've seen a systematic erosion of those regulations that the, you know, teachers, 75, 80% of Americans are not making it, even though they're working, you know, full-time every day, uh, multiple jobs. And at the end of the week, they're, they're not making it. 
That's the voice of Sean Claffey, the director and producer of a new documentary called Americond. And it's about the middle class in America being pushed to the edge and how to fight back against it. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. So let's listen now to the trailer of the film Americond. And after the trailer, we'll be back to talk more with Sean Claffey, the director. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. We're on our way to social solidarity. Uh, with the union. Yo, bro, you work for Amazon? You gonna vote for that union? There just won't be enough jobs to give all Americans a decent livable wage. I want my kids to grow up in a society where they don't have to struggle as hard as we do. That's what we need to fight for. Hey, I'm middle classes. You know, I don't want to say it's gone, but it erodes every single day. Do you think they're going to build any affordable housing here? Oh, hell no. I don't want to work any jobs, nights, weekends. I want a life. The trick in trickle-down economics is getting you to believe that anything which is good for rich people is good for everyone. And anything that is good for everyone else will kill the economy. A union agitator. If they're not going to take care of their employees, somebody has to. They don't invest in us. They don't show us the resources. It's just not sustainable. The, the system is going to collapse. We got to take care of ourselves. We can't rely on the government. And we damn sure can't rely on the 1% class. This is Union Blessing 101. They're going to spend millions of dollars just to stop the voting wrapping up now. Employees are waiting on results. If successful, it could spark the labor movement across the country. Look at everyone out here suffering. What are you doing for us? Our job as Americans is to fight to save this country. We need bold actions, organizing. We can't allow ourselves to be divided. It's really time to rise and fight. I need all of y'all. Are you going to get in the streets and do something? You can handle the responsibility of being a leader. Say it with your chest. <laughs> well, that is the trailer of the new film, Americond. And here on Tuesday Cafe, we're speaking with the director, Sean Claffey. So, Sean, why the title Americond? Well, uh, one of our um, uh, experts, uh, Nick Hanauer, who's actually, uh, uh, he's a billionaire. And he said... Uh, people have to wake up and realize in America that they've been bullied and conned. So we kind of used, you know, and just uh, melded those words together. One of the voices that we heard in that preview there has to do with uh, what happened at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island where a worker there organized some of his co-workers. And then soon after that demonstration that they did, what happened to that worker? Yeah, so that was Chris Smalls, who we've been following for the last three years. And he initially just wanted to get his people masks and gloves. And, you know, here Amazon is sending out, you know, making billions of dollars a day. In fact, Jeff Bezos made $13 billion in one day during that time period. And they wouldn't give them masks, so they walked out. Uh, they fired Chris and then he eventually created the, the biggest new union movement in, in about 75 years. It's the biggest independent uh, unionization of one of the warehouses, about 8,000 employees, and that now they're fighting for a contract for better benefits and better working conditions. 
because basically they can't go to the bathroom. Every second you're not moving toward a goal, you're, it, the time is deducted. And once you hit 31 minutes or so, uh, you can be fired by AI on a text message and then you, you're done. And that's not the way America should be or treat hardworking Americans. Since this union movement by Amazon workers, we've seen uh, workers at Starbucks rising up to form unions. We are seeing right now the actors and writers on strike and uh, the Teamsters and UPS went to battle and it looked like there was going to be a major strike of Teamster workers at the beginning of this month. But because of that pressure, it seems that the uh, UPS essentially gave in to a lot of the demands of the workers. So um, part of what your film is about about is about people fighting back and getting their rights back. Yeah, and, and if you look at, at Chris Smalls in particular, it was basically seven of them who stood up, right? And they had no money. They literally had like 50 bucks. And they spent, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, working all shifts, uh, trying to sign people up. And this group of seven people that, you know, it, it expanded to more people, but in the beginning, who was able to organize against the richest man in the world at the time, Jeff Bezos, who spent $25 million uh, trying to stop them. So if we come together and whether it's a union organization or a grassroots organization, we, you know, in a democracy, we can stand up and we can, we can fight for our rights and fight to, to bring the path of the middle class back. There, there's no one, no matter what your political orientation, that doesn't believe that if you work hard and play by the rules, that you should be able to ascend into the middle class. Our guest is Sean Claffey, the director and producer of a new documentary called Americon about the middle class in America being pushed to the edge and how to fight back against it. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. One of the segments in your film shows Congress debating a minimum wage hike and People of all or all across the political spectrum are warning that raising wages kills jobs. Uh, but you break that down. What is the truth to that statement? Well, let's think about it um, with common sense. If nobody has any money, as Nick Hanover says, who's going to buy this stuff? We saw in Seattle that uh, they raised the minimum wage and they said all the, all the restaurants were going to go out of business. Well, it, as it turns out, more restaurants open because the people that were making more money could actually go out to eat, right? So raising wages doesn't kill jobs. It's, that is just their knee-jerk reaction. If we track minimum wage against productivity and you know corporate uh, CEO salaries, you know it should from 1975 it should be about twenty three dollars, twenty four dollars an hour. Who can survive on seven dollars? and 25 cents an hour, which is the current federal minimum wage. And, you know, they'll, they'll fight you if you wanted to raise it five cents or $20. So you might as well go big uh, when, when pushing for it. And these big companies, they have no problem paying these wages. You know, they're, they're multi-billion dollar or trillion dollar valuations. And the, they have their people on, on government assistance. So we're subsidizing them. So they're not paying their people enough to live. So we subsidize them. And it's, that's really socialism for, for the rich. And the corporations have used their power to influence government policy. Give us an example of, of how that's happened. 
Well, uh, obviously the the lobbyists. I think Bezos now has it's thousands of of lobbyists. I don't want to mis misquote it. So you know, a couple hundred uh, per uh, legislator, and then they also they go after the Supreme Court through the federal federal society to nominate judges that will strike down laws that will uh, help the middle and working class because um, they really only care about their their mega donors. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on Tuesday Cafe, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. Sean Claffey is the director and a producer of Americond. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're going to turn now to our next topic. Thank you to Sean Claffey, and we're going to listen to a little bit of Patti Smith, and we're going to go to, uh, to our next topic in just a second. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. God is given. back and I want to thank our first guest Sean Claffey, the director and producer of Americond. And joining us now is Justin Garcia. We're going to introduce him in just a second, but we'll talk we'll be talking about a range of issues about local police departments, including how a shocking police raid in 2014 led to a review of the city of Tampa's SWAT procedures and a settlement for the family of a man who was killed by police. So I want to welcome now our guest Justin Garcia, who is the Tampa Bay Times state and local accountability reporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Cafe, Justin. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad you could join us. So um, later on in the interview, I'm going to ask about some of your reporting on things like local police departments monitoring private security cameras and a local man that's asking the feds to return his electronic devices after his home was raided in a probe that's related to Fox News. But let's start with a story that's about nine years in the making. And some of our listeners will remember this. So before we get caught up to today with the changes that the police department might be implementing, why don't you bring us back to May 27th, 2014, when Jason Westcott was killed in a Tampa police raid at his home near what was then called the Lowry Park Zoo. Yeah, so um, that night, TPD showed up with a SWAT team, uh, tactical response vehicle, police in, in armor, uh, and essentially broke into Westcott's home where he lived with his boyfriend at the time. They broke in, and within a matter of, of seconds, Westcott was dead. And leading up to that, they had been, TBD had been investigating Westcott for being an alleged drug dealer, but that was a very murky situation because the informant they were using came forward and said that not only did he lie, uh, but he was coerced to lie about Westcott selling drugs or selling large amounts of drugs, right? Um, inside of Westcott's house after... TBD shot and killed him, they found 0.2 grams of marijuana. Um, and so leading up to this, this informant had been telling them, oh yeah, he's selling me weed, when in reality they had just been friends and neighbors and Westcott shared weed with them. And this informant would say, hey man, I'm, I'm having a hard time. Can you hook me up and sell me a little bit? You know. And then when Westcott didn't have anything to sell this informant, uh, the informant alleged that the police coerced him into saying, oh, no, he did sell you um, weed today. He sold you a gram and had him kind of go along with their narrative. So unfortunately, this led to this situation that night uh, back in 2014 where 
police broke in and um, shot and killed Westcott. Our guest is Justin Garcia, who is the Tampa Bay Times state and local accountability reporter. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canaan, and we're hearing about several issues about local police departments, including how this shocking police raid in 2014 led to a a review of the city of Tampa's SWAT procedures and a settlement for the family of the man who was killed by the police. And we're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. And this story may sound familiar to readers of the Times, of course, or to listeners of WMNF, because uh, we're going to play some audio right now that comes from a WMNF show that aired in April of 2015. We're going to play a couple minutes right now of Jason Westcott's mother. Remember, Jason is the person that, that Justin was telling you about who was shot and killed in this raid. His mother's name is Patty Silliman. And we'll also hear from Jason's boyfriend, Israel or Izzy Reyes. They were interviewed on WMNF by Rob Lorai in April of 2015 about what happened when Jason Westcott was killed. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. We'll be back in a second with Justin Garcia, but here is some of the mother and boyfriend of the man who was killed. He was a um, motorcycle mechanic. Uh, He also worked with his brother doing um, cell phone towers. Jason was... He just, he had a huge heart, and he was there for everybody. You won't find a soul that didn't know him that he didn't do something for in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And, and is you're his boyfriend. Uh, give us a little bit more about Jason and who he was. Like Patty was saying, he was, he had a huge heart. He always did something for anybody. It, if, even if it didn't benefit him, he was... He was always willing to do it. And uh, uh, the two of you lived, you rented a house off North Boulevard in Seminole Heights, not too far from the Lowry Park Zoo, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. How long were you together with uh, Jason? Uh, For two and a half years. Uh Let's talk about uh, the night of the raid, if we could, for a moment. Uh, What do you remember about the night of the raid? Um, Well, we were both working that day, so I came home. Jason was already home from work. I came inside the house and, um, you know, took a shower, got ready, and we ate dinner early that day around 5 or 6 o'clock, and he passed out in the bedroom sleep, and I went out to the living room to watch some TV, and I ended up passing out asleep, and then the next thing I know, I'm being drugged off the couch and thrown onto the ground by the SWAT team, and then... I hear the gunshots when they shot and killed him. How many gunshots did you hear? There were five gunshots consecutively. Did Jason die right away? He did. Yeah. And did you see Jason? Um, I seen him after the fact, after they shot him, after the two officers were standing over him. It must have been really hard on you. Yeah, it was really hard seeing the blood spider dripping down the walls and it was it just wasn't a it wasn't a sight for anybody to see the tampa police department raided your home because they thought that you and jason were dealing drugs were you guys drug dealers no we're not drug dealers we're recreational pot smokers you know we we did have marijuana and we would 
smoke with our friends. And that was it. That was it. That was it. Uh, Patty, how did you get the word that, that Jason had been killed? I was at work, and my um, my other son called my my work and told me that there had been a raid at my son's house and that I needed to leave work. And I said, a raid? What do you mean? You have to know that previously, seven months before, there was a um, an incident at his house where people had threatened to rob him. So I assume that's what he meant. And then my son said, no, Ma, you have to leave, like right now, because Jason was shot. And I'm like, shot? By who? And he said, the police. And that was pretty much how I found out I was at work by my son. Had, had Jason ever been in trouble with the police prior to this? Never. Matter Never. of fact, he called them looking to make sure that he was safe. Well, that was Patty Silliman, the mother of Jason Westcott. And we also heard Westcott's boyfriend, Izzy Reyes, speaking with WMNF's Rob Lorai in April of 2015. And we're going to hear a little bit more from Izzy Reyes in a few minutes. But I want to bring back our guest, Justin Garcia, who is the Tampa Bay Times state and local accountability reporter. And Justin, your reporting recently uh, has been that there's been a settlement in this case and also that there have been policy changes to how the SWAT team is used. So let's start with that settlement. What did Jason's family uh, get in a settlement? Yeah, so the city of Tampa paid uh, Silliman $75,000. The state of Florida caps its wrongful death uh, settlements in situations like this at $250,000. And... Um, Silliman thought it was best after such a long legal battle to just move on and, and accept what the city was offering. But um, since 2014, she has said over and over again, you can even look at previous news articles from from years ago where she says it's not about the money so much as changing the culture, changing uh, what, what the SWAT team does and how it's implemented in order to make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else's child. And so in that way, she got what she wanted, you know, and that that's kind of what was revealed in this reporting as well. Uh, the SWAT team kind of quietly months after the shooting changed the way that it operates. And they did that through um, a points-based matrix that I looked at where they essentially say, hey, you got to check off all these all these check boxes first before you actually have the SWAT team move in, you know, and break into somebody's house with guns drawn. So did the police eventually clear Jason Westcott of any of wrongdoing in this case? I mean, uh, even in their statement for this story, they kind of justify the shooting, even though they've settled with, with uh, Miss Silliman. You know, they say that because Westcott had a gun in his house, um, that the shooting was was justified, you know. Um, but that's a very complicated situation as well because TPD knew that Westcott had a gun. They knew that it was legally purchased, and they knew that because Westcott had called officers leading up to the raid months before when he saw that people were um, chatting about possibly robbing his house uh, online. And um, he got like a screenshot of that, I believe, and then said, hey, you know, reached out to TBD, said, hey, I'm feeling like I might be in danger here and I might get robbed. And TPD detectives advised him, if anybody breaks into your house, you should shoot to kill. Um, that being said, Westcott never shot 
and there's no evidence that he even raised his gun uh, at the officers who shot him. But that should have been in TPD's mind, uh, Silliman believes, before breaking into the house, you know, and before using that kind of aggressive tactic that they used that night uh, that Westcott died. Our guest is Justin Garcia, who is the Tampa Bay Times state and local accountability reporter. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're hearing about local police departments. That right now we're speaking about that police raid in 2014 that led to a review of the Tampa City of Tampa's SWAT procedures and also a settlement for the family of the man who was killed. And we're broadcasting from WMNF in Tampa. In your piece, you mentioned that the Tampa police SWAT team arrived at, at a house at the house where Reyes and Westcott lived. And you wrote that they had a Bearcat armored vehicle, a tactical response trailer and officers wearing body armor. And that minutes later, Westcott was dead and his body riddled with shotgun and pistol bullets. So I want to play this. This last clip that we have here is Izzy Reyes. That's Westcott's boyfriend's his description of what he saw last night. And then we'll be back back with Justin. Justin Garcia after we hear from Izzy. The whole street was filled with cops. Um, but initially it was the tactical response team who was in the house and there was like at least five or six of them. I, I can remember four or five rushing in all at the same time. And then after the fact, they brought me out the house and I sat in a um, cop car for like four hours so I seen um you know Jason being brought out of the house and them doing you know their job how were the police dressed the, the SWAT team who came into my house they're dressed in all black so you couldn't really tell that it was the police because I couldn't see any like they didn't have anything that stated that they were the police on them. It was just an all black suit. And then just the regular officers were in their uniform and then they had undercover officers out there as well that just looked like regular people. Did it look like a military operation to you? It didn't. It was, I just couldn't believe how many patrol vehicles were out there and over something, we over nothing. That was Izzy Reyes speaking on WMNF with Rob Lorai in 2015, describing the night the previous year that the police raided his house and killed his boyfriend, Jason Westcott. And we're speaking now on WMNF with the Tampa Bay Times state and local accountability reporter, Justin Garcia. So police in that case had a warrant to break into Westcott's house. Uh, I think those are called no-knock warrants, but you can uh, correct me if I've got it wrong there. And as you said earlier, this was based on the false information they had gotten from an unreliable informant, Ronnie Kugel. And you also mentioned, and maybe you can go into a little bit more detail here, that not only was he unreliable, but Kugel was also coerced by the Tampa police officers to kind of make up this claim about buying drugs from Westcott. Yeah, um, back in 2014, I believe there there was an article uh, that was kind of a deep dive into this uh, informant that talks about, you know, his history, how, how, Several times he had been unreliable and was known to lie, but yet TPD kept using him anyways. And beyond that, from what it, what it seems like from the, the informant's perspective, is that he was kind of 
afraid to not lie, right? Like he, they, they paid him too. This is another thing is he was making money off of this. So if he doesn't give them cases, if he doesn't give them quote unquote drug dealers, right, then he doesn't have that position anymore. And uh, in his mind, I think in the story, he talks about being in fear of losing this job because what else is he going to do at this point, right? He had already been in prison and stuff like that, and it's hard to find a job. So he had that personal incentive like, hey, you want to keep getting paid by us to be an informant, you better produce the goods kind of thing. And then uh, he alleged in, in this previous time story as well that he tried to tell them, you know, hey, he doesn't have anything in there. You know, uh, and they said, oh, no, you bought a gram from him is what is what this informant alleged. And also saying that, you know, the, that the police kind of coerced him into saying that that he saw like a pound of marijuana in there, you know, that that he had first said that he saw some marijuana and then they were like, how much? And kind of talked him into saying that there was this large amount that could justify, you know, getting this warrant and, and breaking into the home. Um, and, and that was part of the SWAT changes that I found with my recent story too this year is that in this email that I obtained uh, as part of writing this story, the SWAT team commander says, hey, you need to check on your informants before you before you move with information from them. So it did lead to these changes that the, that the police kind of kept quiet for eight years until this story came out. And Google, uh, the informant um, for TBD after the uh after the Westcott raid was then redlined, which is a term for they're no longer using that informant anymore. So after this raid, you know, even though TPD isn't saying outright, oh, we made these mistakes and we changed things, the the proof is in the pudding kind of right. Like there are there are documents and changes that were made that kind of show that they realized what was wrong with the situation and decided to change things. In this case, police used, got a warrant that allowed them to break into the house without any kind of warning, without, any, without knocking or anything. But are there other mes- methods they could have used to catch what they thought was a drug dealer um, that didn't involve uh, such a potentially violent scene? Yeah, that's kind of what Silliman's lawyer talked to me about, John McGuire. There are several methods, and he's, he's a former law enforcement officer, too. So he talked about, you know, you turn off the water outside so that way they can't flush a large amount of drugs and then you can kind of turn on your lights uh really bright and use a bullhorn and shout you know tpd tampa police you know come outside and get them to, to come outside so that way the officers are safer too that was another big contention that the, that john mcguire had with this situation being a former law enforcement officer and i, I read the depositions by the cops who were involved in the raid and uh, as McGuire points out, you're not only, you know, you not only put Westcott and his boyfriend's lives in danger and took Westcott's life, you also are putting this police in an unnecessarily dangerous situation, right? Like, um, who knows what could have happened? Um, and like, like I said, Westcott had been told by TPD detectives before, shoot to kill if somebody comes in here because you're being, you're being threatened and people are threatening to rob you. You know, so it was a, it was a highly dangerous situation that could have been avoided by these other tactics is what the legal team argued. Right. So they could have done what I talked about, turn off the water, sit outside, ask them to come outside. And, you know, the fact that they found 0.2 grams of weed after the shooting kind of says like, hmm, you know, it makes you wonder would would Westcott and his boyfriend just have come outside if, if they had asked them to.
Our guest is Justin Garcia. He is the Tampa Bay Times State and local accountability reporter. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. And we've been hearing about a range of issues of local police departments, including this story about that police raid in 2014 that Justin found has led to a review of the city of Tampa's SWAT procedures and a settlement for the family of the man who was killed. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. And I want to turn now to another story that you recently published. And it's about how 13 law enforcement agencies in Florida, including two here in the Tampa Bay area, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office and the Clearwater Police Department, do business with a company called Fusis. And correct me if I've got that pronunciation incorrect. And this company will allow those law enforcement agencies to watch video from up to 2,500 private security cameras, such as those ring doorbell security cameras in real time if the users opt in. So what does this FUSIS technology do, Justin? Yeah, so essentially law enforcement stance on the FUSIS technology is that it keeps communities safer by increasing police oversight in areas where there normally wouldn't necessarily be police oversight. But that's complicated, right? Because without FUSIS, police can go and obtain video footage, right? So say a shooting happens in your neighborhood and you have a ring doorbell camera and the police are trying to figure out what's going on. Without the FUSIS technology, they can come and knock on your door and say, hey, do you want to turn over this footage? If you want to, to help them figure out what's going on, then you can turn over turn over your footage, right? However, with FUSIS, it's different because what happens is once the police get an agreement from a private home or a private business, they can then have real-time access to those cameras at kind of any time. So that means if you as, an, as, a, as a citizen are walking into this business and that business has agreed to allow real-time monitoring of their cameras by the police, you can walk into that business and un- you can be unaware that you're now under surveillance by the police, right? Same thing with their outdoor cameras of those businesses or even walking through your neighborhood, correct? Like if if they've made a deal with several people in your neighborhood, which I've heard since this story, they've sent out multiple emails to people that have responded uh, to this story saying, hey, join this program. So that could turn into, and this is what the privacy advocates argue, that can turn into a kind of a vast police spying network where these fuses uh, infused cameras are now kind of monitoring kind of every corner of neighborhoods. And so that's where the kind of conflict between law enforcement saying it keeps us safer and privacy and civil right advocates comes in where it's it's like, how much of our personal privacy do we want to give away for this potential for, for more safety in our neighborhoods? And you mentioned when the, if, if there is a crime and police would like access to these private cameras, you mentioned they can go to a, a house, for example, and ask for permission. But they also, even if they're denied that, they could get a warrant and get this by, you know, the courts could, they could convince the courts that this is important enough that they have to access it regardless of whether the homeowner wants them to or not. So it's not like there's no other way for them to get this information. Yeah, and that's traditionally been the method, right? Um, and that, that that's also kind of important for a lot of people because it leaves a paper trail, right? You got a warrant, you got a piece of paper, you went and talked to these people and you, you obtained this footage. With FUSIS, uh, another issue is that once they have access, there's it's really hard to track 
how often they're tapping in and, and watching that video feed and what they're obtaining from that video feed, what they're keeping. Uh, and that's another contention that civil rights advocates have is this technology is kind of is kind of blasted off in the past few years, right? Like it, it just started spreading uh, in 2019, 2020. And within the past few years, it's, it's kind of everywhere across the country. And Florida is actually one of the leading states in the country um, from, from what I've found in implementing this technology. So that, that can be an issue because it's spreading so quickly, right? Like a lot of technology that spreads really quickly and is new, but how do we hold on to the oversight and accountability of how it's being used and how it's being implemented? And in this story, in this case, I found two local agencies that are using it and Clearwater Police Department was pretty transparent and shared documentation with me and sat down for an interview with me and answered some hard questions. Whereas Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, they were very guarded. I kind of had to push and push to get them to even admit that they had a current contract that they could share with me that shared more details about how they're using FUSIS and how many cameras they have access to, which they can, in Hillsborough County, they can gain up access of up to a thousand private cameras. And so that raises red flags for me as a reporter, right? And I think for civil rights advocates too, is why be guarded about this if it's such a positive technology that's being used to, to help the community? Why not be transparent? And I think that's the key with technologies like this. And this is kind of the argument being made is if these technologies are going to be used correctly and to benefit the community, then there has to be transparency. Our guest is Justin Garcia, the Tampa Bay Times state and local accountability reporter. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're talking about police departments in the area. Right now we're talking about video technology that they're getting access to. And the this FUSIS company that these two agencies are working with, they also have add-ons to their basic model. And maybe you can tell us what these add-ons are and what they might be able to do. So one is a predictive policing tool. Another is AI, artificial intelligence searches, and then gunshot detection. So what would those add-ons do to this technology and to privacy? Yeah, so FUSIS, the way it works, one officer described it as essentially like buying a car that you can get the full-blown model with all of the add-ons, or you can get the more stripped-down version that just gives you access to cameras. Um, but some of these add-ons are do have a, a kind of disturbing history, right? Um for example, there, there's now this company called Geolitica, and they changed their name from Predpol, which that name, Predpol, came under fire years ago in 2021 because essentially that is is predictive policing, right? And it's a technology that, that tells police, hey, these communities are more likely to have crimes, so you need to patrol them more. The problem with that is, and this is a, a historical problem with this type of policing, is that there was an analysis of Predpol and the predictions it was making and where it was telling police to go. And the increased police presence was over and over again found to be in neighborhoods that are, are Black, Latino, low income, and stuff like that. So that has raised a lot of red flags, uh, just those partnerships with, with companies like that. And then they also um, partner with Sound Thinking, which is the parent company for ShotSpotter. And that's a gunshot detection tool. I actually found um, last year, I believe, that ShotSpotter is being used by Tampa Police Department, but only in East Tampa, right, which is the historically black and brown neighborhood of Tampa. So anyways, FUSIS teams up with ShotSpotter as well, 
and uh, the the cameras can kind of be linked to the shot spider interface, where it's like, hey, there was a a sound that sounds like a gunshot uh, in this neighborhood, and so then the cameras in that area are kind of like alerted in the in the monitoring system by the police, and then they can go and access those cameras to look for that gunshot sound. The problem with that is. Shot spotter has over and over again been found to be faulty, right? It's been found to waste police time. It's been found to negatively affect that they interact with the communities. Uh, it's put an innocent uh, black Chicago man in jail based on faulty shot spotter evidence because sometimes shot spotters alerted by loud exhausts and stuff like that too, right? Or fireworks. Uh, and so it can lead to all these problems. And this isn't just civil rights groups that have found these problems with ShotSpotter. It was the Chicago Attorney General um, who reviewed ShotSpotter and found how, how negative this can, this can be in certain situations and when used the wrong way. And uh, in Clearwater, they said that they're not using Geolitica, Predpol, or ShotSpotter. And uh, a spokesperson for HVSO said that they don't use the shot spotter technology add-on, but didn't answer if they use um, the Geolitica or predictive policing tool with, with FUSIS. Another item that the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office uses in conjunction with FUSIS is something else that's called Eye on Crime Network. And in contrast, I guess, with these private security cameras that people might have at their homes or private businesses, this Ion Crime Network links to hundreds of publicly owned cameras at intersections. So how does this combination uh, play out in, in uh, law enforcement? Yeah, so that is the thing about FUSIS too, is it's not just private cameras, right? Um, people already know for the most part that law enforcement can access public cameras at intersections and, and HPSO has been doing that for a while, but now FUSIS can kind of link the publicly owned cameras that law enforcement can monitor and the private. So it just creates this huge network, right? Around say in Hillsborough County, around the county where at intersections, and then when you walk into a business, and then when you walk through a neighborhood, there's kind of constant surveillance, right? And we've we've heard about that for a long time about what can be the problems with that. You know, science fiction authors were writing about it in the 1950s, and you know, even the Clearwater Police Department chief said, "We're not trying to be Big Brother here." You know, um, so people are aware of these the privacy intrusions that can occur, uh, and so that's what's raised a lot of concern around around the FUSIS technology is. Now it's grabbing these public cameras, teaming it up with potential other technology that's had uh, a spotty history, right? And then uh, also the private cameras. So eventually, depending on how fast this spreads, it could be one of those situations where it could lead to some um, intrusion of privacy. The Hillsborough Sheriff's Office also uses trailers that recognize license plates. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is I had seen those around I was like taking pictures of those last year or something and uh, sending them around and trying to figure out what those were. And then through grabbing this contract with FUSIS, I was like, oh, that's what they were. Because I've seen them around downtown Tampa, other parts of the county. Uh, and so, yes, there are these um, license plate recognition trailers, which essentially uh, automatically scan license plates that, that drive by these trailers. They're little, they're like square boxes, usually... Uh, usually metal outside and then they have a camera coming off the top and that camera is just scanning license plates automatically the details of that are kind of spotty or are they just looking for people without standing warrants maybe or 
are they alerting police to expired tags? I, I don't know for sure yet, but um, they they requested funding for that to the tune of almost two hundred thousand um, dollars back in twenty twenty at least. Justin Garcia is the Tampa Bay Times state and local accountability reporter. And we were talking at the beginning of this segment about FUSIS, which is a company that allows the law enforcement agencies that have it, like Hillsborough County Sheriff's and Clearwater Police Department, to access individual home and businesses, private security cameras, if the user opts in. And I want to focus on that last statement here for a second. So how can people check to see if maybe they opted in and didn't mean to, or maybe they have, is there a way to opt back out if they have changed their mind? That's a great question. Um, so after this story, I received some input and I, I want to get a copy of this email, but apparently HCSO has been sending around an email that kind of says, join this program. It'll be part of your community like activity or community monitoring network. Um, and then they said that it was kind of in the fine print of the email that it was like saying that the police would have constant access to this, to this network. Right. So I, I don't know if that's confirmed yet. Obviously I still have to get a copy of that email that's a great question with this technology is, is, is I know for sure with businesses, they go, they send emails and they approach in person and they say, Hey, do you want to join this network to keep your business safer? And I think it's pretty explicit. I think with the, the way they're selling the, the home uh, monitoring technology, it's perhaps a little more gray, right? Um, it's a little more like just join this network. It'll, it'll, it'll be good for your neighborhood kind of thing. Uh, which is the, the, the law enforcement stance is that it'll be good for your neighborhood. But I want to make sure, you know, in, in a potential follow-up that that law enforcement is being very explicit in saying, you are joining this program that will give us real-time access to your cameras by agreeing to this, you're opting in. And I believe people can opt back out, um, but that's a good question to confirm. And throughout this discussion, you've been talking about privacy concerns that advocates have mentioned about police using this technology. And one more that I'd like to, to say is that in your article, it mentioned that one of the privacy advocates said that whenever there's over-policing and using that term, I guess, to describe having access to hundreds and hundreds of, of private cameras, over-policing often results when the community is under a microscope. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is that is the history of, of some of this technology, including the shot spotter example I gave, right? You put shot spotter in the neighborhood, it starts hearing sounds that sound like gunshots, and all of a sudden, more police are kind of swarming. And then what kind of neighborhood is that that they put the shot spotter technology in? Oh, it's a black and brown neighborhood. It's a low-income neighborhood. And so, yeah, that can lead to a lot more kind of arrests, a lot more kind of shakedowns and, and kind of... Um, giving the police uh, like kind of a probable cause to be in that neighborhood and talk to people and then, you know, see what happens from there. Uh, and, and then, yeah, anytime you have kind of like more increased police presence in one neighborhood with this negative connotation, right? Like, oh, there are more shootings here. It's more dangerous. It's more, it's unsafe. So we have to be here to take out the bad element, which, you know, nobody wants to be in a neighborhood with a lot of shootings. Nobody wants to be in a neighborhood that feels unsafe. But it's even been found, like I said, by the Chicago Attorney General, that that kind of mindset going into those neighborhoods can lead to some really bad situations where, where the wrong decision is made and where innocent people are harmed.
Well, let's turn now to a third recent article of yours that I'd like to discuss in the last four or five minutes that we have. This involves the latest developments in the case of a Tampa man whose home was searched by the FBI. The feds have now denied Tim Burke's request that his electronics equipment had be returned while the government investigates leaked Fox News videos. So remind us what happened there. Yeah, so it was back in May, I received a tip. I got a phone call that... uh, Tim Burke, who is a journalist who's worked for uh, Deadspin, um, you know, Gawker, all kinds of, of big national outlets, and now owns a media consulting business and uh, does journalism on the side. Uh, his house was had was surrounded by law enforcement um, on this day, May I believe it was May eighth, and so I ran over there, uh, talked to the agents. They didn't identify what law enforcement agency they were with. I confirmed that it was the FBI and then kind of broke that story. And then everybody's going, well, what the hell was this about? Right. And then we obtained a document that showed that it was related to these leaked videos of behind the scene footage of Tucker Carlson that was later published by the website Media Matters and this anti-Semitic rant from Kanye West, which was later published by, I believe, Vice and that Burke had obtained those videos. And that's what the FBI was concentrating on uh, specifically, uh, was was obtaining those videos and perhaps others related to this big Fox News leaks that had occurred over the course of months. And uh, Burke's legal team, which includes um, Mark Rash, who's a former federal prosecutor for computer crimes, argues that Burke was doing journal digital journalism, right? He was finding videos that maybe Fox News didn't want him to find, but he was finding them in a publicly accessible forum and then uh, helping distribute them to these media outlets that later published them. Meanwhile, the prosecutor for the U.S. Department of Justice is saying that they need more time to to find to look through uh, Burke's devices. Keep in mind now it's been over three months, right? Uh, and obtaining all those devices or confiscating all those devices also stopped Burke's work completely, right? And his 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 company, Burke Communications, worked for ESPN. His work was on HBO, major, major media outlets, right? And so this all came to a standstill when his devices were confiscated. So to this day, Burke still hasn't been charged with any type of crime. And they're arguing, hey, give me my equipment back because I need to be able to do my work. Uh, and meanwhile, the prosecutor for the U.S. Department of Justice has said, said that there may be possible, quote, uh, fruits of a crime in those devices and that they need more time. Um, just recently, Burke was given access not to his phone, but to his phone's authentic authentication system. So that way he could access, you know, his Twitter accounts and bank accounts and stuff like that. So he's able to do that part of his life again and get back online. But they're still holding on to his devices while they investigate. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming back on Tuesday Cafe, Justin. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really glad you could join us. Uh, Very informative. Thanks so much. Well, Justin Garcia is the Tampa Bay Times state and local accountability reporter. I also want to thank our earlier guest, Sean Claffey, the director and a producer of the new documentary, Americond. And if you missed any of these interviews, you can watch them on our website, WMNF.org. I want to thank our phone screener, John Dunn. You've been listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. During this time slot tomorrow, Shelley Reback will host Midpoint. Next up is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. This is WMNF Tampa.
Today, people all around the world are coming together to tap into the power of human connection, strengthen communities, and change our world. Will you be one of them? WMNF is participating in Giving Tuesday, and we need your help. By joining the Giving Tuesday movement, you're proving that in times of uncertainty, generosity can bring the whole world together. Give now at WMNF.org. Support for Wavemakers comes from listeners like you and the Tampa Bay Times. The Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper is available around the Tampa Bay area and online at tampabay.com. Thanks to the Tampa Bay Times for their support. This is WMNF Tampa and WMNF.org. The next Wavemakers is a pre-recorded program, so we will not be accepting phone calls. So uh, keep that in mind. Harrison Nash will follow Alternative Radio. He will be live, and so you can call him and make your requests for any song you want. Don't forget this Saturday is WMNF's 8th Annual Uke It Out Festival, featuring Rebecca Pulley, the Chris Tracy duo, the Florida Ukulele Orchestra, Polly Essence, Emmett Carlisle, and the Bare Bones Band. That is taking place at Cage Brewing, which is at 2001 First Avenue South in St. Pete. Admission is $20 in advance and $25 at the door. It's an all-ages show, and it runs from 3 to 9.30 p.m. Once again, Wavemakers will be coming up. It's a pre-recorded show, so don't please hold your phone calls, and we'll be back.